Hello, and welcome to the Equity Foundation podcast. The Equity Foundation is the professional development arm of Actors' Equity. Our mission is to assist, educate, and inspire performers. To find out more, visit www.equityfoundation.org.au. Okay, so hello everyone. And this is Saroni, and welcome to the third Screen Diversity Showcase session on health and well-being, raising the bar for screen creatives. To start with, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land that we are meeting on today, the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'd also like to acknowledge and pay my respect to elders past, present and emerging, and extend that to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here today. Please feel free to acknowledge the land that you're on in the chat pod. And you can also put your name and pronouns in your display name if you prefer. And um, a big thank you to Screen Australia for their massive support for this 2021 Screen Diversity Showcase. And this panel discussion is being recorded and the recording will also be made available to those who are unable to attend today's session. So um, tonight's panel discussion not only features our stellar panel, but also features a Q&A option. So we want all of you to get involved, share your ideas, pop your questions in the chat pod. And you can also pop your questions in the chat if you prefer to be private and uh, be anonymous, then send it through the chat directly to me. And um, I can, you know, uh, ask that question on your behalf. And we will definitely try our best to get through all the questions, but please be aware that if there's double ups or we really are running out of time, uh, we may not get through everyone's questions. And uh, very importantly, uh, since today's conversation will be around some of the biggest mental health and well-being challenges facing creatives and artists. So uh, we will be covering topics such as mental ill health, trauma, sexual violence and abuse. And we will be hearing directly from industry practitioners about their experiences and what is depicted on screen. So which can often be confronting triggering or distressing for some of us. So if at any point in time you're feeling uncomfortable, you need to step away or take a break, please feel free to do that. And also just so we can support each other better, uh, if any of you are struggling and need support, you can reach out to the Support Act Wellbeing Helpline at 1-800-959-500. And there are others like Lifeline and Beyond Blue as well. And we also have Kathy today, a mental health first aid trained assistant today. And uh, thank you, Kathy, for being with us. So if anyone is feeling distressed by any of the content, you can reach out directly to Kathy uh, via the chat function. Yeah. Okay, so um, I think we'll introduce our marvelous panel here now. And uh, so first we have Ben. So Ben, if you want to say hello and... Uh, yeah, so uh, my name is Ben. I'm an actor and a filmmaker. I uh, made a documentary a couple of years ago called The Show Must Go On, uh, which was on the ABC, which is all around mental health and wellbeing challenges in the entertainment industry. 
Um, and yeah, kind of since then have been on a, on a journey to do my best to help improve uh, well-being uh, across the creative industries. Uh, and more specifically recently, uh, narrowing in a little bit on the screen sector. So yeah, that's me. Hey, everybody. And I'm coming from Yugambeh, uh, language people country and shout out to all the indigenous folks from that land who may be here and also Ben Rice, thanks to the custodians, emerging leaders as well. Thank you so much, Ben. And then we have Bailey Turner. Thank you, Saroni. Uh, ciao, everybody. I'm coming to you from Wurundjeri country and I'm paying respects to elders past and present. Um, as, uh, my name is Bailey. Uh, my pronouns are she, her. I am a proud queer trans woman. And I mostly work as a consent educator. I work with creative teams to talk about consent in content, in creative practice, in building of character. Um, and that also includes uh, working in supporting intimacy content uh, on stage, particularly and on screen. I'm currently training as an intimacy coordinator and director with IDC Professionals, um, which I'm really excited to talk a little bit about. Um, and shout out to people who um, share that training with me on this call. Thank you. Thank you, Bailey. And then we have Pip. Hi, hi, hi. Um, I am an actor. I've, I've been an actor for about um, 20 years or so, but then I've, for a while I've been um, an acting coach as well and an acting teacher. And I work largely with screen acting. I work in auditioning and self-taping. I have a self-taping studio and also business of acting. Um, I'm a member of the Equity Wellness Committee. I am very, very, very passionate about the fact that we, we need to have tools that allows our career allow our careers to flourish that we can flourish in our career longevity of career um, uh, and also being able to um, offer ourselves and our vulnerability in our craft in things like an audition space and um, and how you can um, use your best health and wellness to, to flourish in your art and your life and your career thank you thank you so much Fit. And then we have Chris, Chris Cheers. Good evening, hi everyone. Uh, yeah, my name is Chris. I'm a psychologist and a lecturer uh, here in uh, Wurundjeri country. I'd like to acknowledge elders past, present, and merging, and also acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. I'd um, also add, you know, I'm a psychologist that works specifically with the LGBTIQ community and also the arts community. Um, and I'm also queer myself and have worked in arts organisations for many years before um, ending up as a psychologist. So I like to bring both those lived experiences uh, to my work as a psychologist and also um, running workshops with a lot of arts organisations over the years. And I'm also very passionate about uh, the, the balance that you can reach with well-being and your artistic practice. They don't compete, they work together. And um, I, I hope that I can help um, help people get that balance and keep making the amazing art that they do and you all do. Thank you so much Chris, thank you the panelists for that wonderful introduction. So uh, we've had some questions from the participants uh, already and uh, I've just tried to sort of uh, frame our discussion today. So I'm going to start with this one here that what are some of the practical techniques and resilience tools performers and creatives can employ in their processes to secure their well-being in such a demanding workplace. So uh, if Ben, you want to take that and then Pip, you can add to that or. Yeah, wow. So what a what a massive big question to start off with. Um, so I think what I might do is share a little bit of a story or, or an example from, from my own life when I was struggling and I've 
I've always found it difficult and kind of felt a little bit bad that I wasn't able to find a way with meditation myself. And I know meditation works amazing for so many people. So I always was beating myself up that it never kind of worked for me. But I listened to this podcast <clears throat> once and they talked about minute meditations and I gave that a crack and that really worked for me. And the basic principle is basically take a, uh, a routine, something that you do several times a day, uh, like brushing your teeth or making a cup of tea or something like that. And in that, that one minute that you're doing this thing, um, just be much more present, like focus on your breath. What can you see? What can you hear? What can you taste? What can you, what are you touching? So for me, I chose getting in and out of my car because I was still making show must go on at that point. And I was going in and out of the car, like quite a lot per day. And it just subtly started teaching me some of the basics about meditation that I was missing out on because I was trying to take on this big, thing of like 20 minutes or 40 minutes or something larger I couldn't kind of wrap my head around sitting still for that long but I really found minute meditations really 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 beneficial for me um, and so that's one of the tools that I have in my toolkit now to make sure that uh, daily weekly monthly yearly hourly my uh, mental health and well-being is kind of on track and is that also the uh, is that applicable and valid for um, the crew as well? Yeah. So this is, I mean, great thing about meditation and minute meditation is it's for everyone. It's a human. <laughs> as long as you're a human and you're breathing, like doesn't matter what race, what sex, what gender, whatever. Like it's it's something that we can all kind of practice should we choose to. Um, and of course, there's you know there's many other things that I'm sure we'll explore throughout the panel. But yeah. It's a human thing, whether you're a crew, you're a performer, I believe, um, just being a little bit more present and a little bit more uh, mindful and growing your awareness and growing some of your self-care skills uh, are vital to, yeah. So for me, mental health is not like this <clears throat> thing. And often the word mental health goes to the negative. We think of mental ill health straight away. If someone mentions mental health, we go to the negative. But mental health is like positive and negative across the whole spectrum. So um, we often think of it, oh, mental health or meditation or trying to navigate these things uh, it, only when it's a problem. But I feel like mental health, just like your diet, what you eat is your diet. <laughs> you know, uh, your, your mental health is uh, not just the crisis state. It's actually, what do you do to kind of keep on track of yourself mentally, psychologically, emotionally day in day out and that that's the way that i kind of work from now and pip chris anything you want to add to that um i uh like when we're working and coaching in regards to korea i think that discussing resilience tools and mindset and self-worth is where it the foundations of actually managing your career and i think first and foremost it's who are you and valuing yourself outside of your craft? I think this is really big. Um, I often do a, 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 a thing with clients of like, you know, the wheel of life, you know, the wheel of life and just going, what, what is in, what is in balance? What do you need? Do you, do we need joy? What a, a sense of play? How's your, how are you like finances can influence that and instability? Are you exhausted? I think 
you know, food, good food and, and exercise. I think all of that is important. At, at the core of it, it, I think it comes down to, I'm not even talking about self-confidence, it's like self-worth outside of the craft. I think this is so bloody important because, you know, it's ups and downs, ups and downs, yeah? And so work, keeping that skill going, I think, um, understanding, I find, you know, lots of quotes of people that all, you know, suffer imposter syndrome or suffer nerves and being able to work with that, um, you know, the invent deny nothing can also come into our craft as well as our life and accepting all of that. Um, I think, you know, maintaining good per um, personal relationships as well as professional relationships, support networks. Um, something I'm very, very, very big on um, is the how are, how are we congratulating ourselves at the end of something so much so now in the self tape space because uh, like you know at least before when you went in the room you had a huge like a human to go oh yeah well done now it's like you send these tapes into the abyss and then how do you finish that are you going to rip the script up are you how are you going to celebrate that and what reward do you have for yourself so um you know, people like cooking or is it calling a mate or is it, you know, understanding now those things that that nourish you and, and offering yourself those little rewards at the end of, yes, even an audition, finding your value every time you do an audition, offering something um, for that is a part of you that's your joy to offer rather than putting all the control outside of yourself, I think the wheel of um, the circle of influence, I think understanding, getting very clear what is in your control, what is in your influence, what is outside your control, um, the serenity prayer for what is outside your control. I think that that can be a wonderful um, gift. I think, um, yeah, what else? The, the, uh, yeah, support network is so, um, it is important in that your tribe, your honest tribe, I think. Yeah, there's a, there's a few there. We could go on. I think this yeah, is this the you. core of thank your craft. You. Mm. Thank you so much. And Chris, did you want to add anything, really, if, if you want to add to that? Well, I mean, taking off of what Ben and Pippa are saying, which are all wonderful ideas, and I think we what's really useful is we, we often already know what we need to do to look after ourselves, you know, to connect with others or to nourish ourselves, to rest. Um, what I find really interesting is the space of, knowing why we don't do these things that we know would be good for us. And I love exploring that space with people. And I think when you go into that space, what's really important, and I think more important than actually the, the goal you're setting or the self-care activity that you're choosing to do, is what's your attitude towards yourself as you try and incorporate that into your life. And um, that this is, I guess, a place of, of compassion, really, that if you try to set a goal, whether it's to do a minute meditation today or to eat well today or to, to connect to a friend and it doesn't happen, I think one of the most important things you can do is in that moment be able to say to yourself, you know, you know, the goal was the problem, not me. The goal was unachievable. I'm, I still have worth. As Pip was saying that having knowing that you have worth beyond your actions and beyond your acting, beyond your career, that I think that, that quote, I think it's Brene Brown, there's no prerequisites on worthiness you have worthiness, and then you act as well. Um, and if you can find that space, it means that whenever you're trying self-care or trying acting and it doesn't go the way you're going or, or whatever it is in the arts that you're working in, 
to know that that worth is still there and that these goals are just things you can keep trying at and stay curious and compassionate to yourself as you try and incorporate these things that that you know would be good for you but that doesn't make it easy to try and incorporate them into your life thank you so much to of you so uh, we have a question from a participant who wants me to read it out on their behalf so does the panel have any suggestions for writing about mental health in both an accurate and responsible way? Uh, speaking from, um, try to speak from your lived experience um, as much as possible and um, focus on that uh, and, and make sure that that's the experience you're speaking from and that's the person you're speaking for yourself um, when you're talking about mental health. And if, and if you do want to speak about something that isn't your experience, try and you know, use the voices you know, and include the voices and work with the voices from that lived experience whenever you're working in anything to do with mental health, I think should always be the foundation of, of any writing um, when it comes to mental health. Ben, did you want to add to that? Yeah, sure. So um, I think specifically from a writing perspective, there's a, a, a great website, mindframe.org.au, um, formerly the Hunter Institute, but now they call themselves EveryMind. And there's, there's an actual written guide about, uh, yeah, stage or screen writing about things to consider when you're developing your characters and how to kind of portray folks uh, on screen with, uh, with mental illness. So yeah, that would be my port of call as far as <clears throat> to make sure that you're sensitively kind of uh, creating the characters and also making them more than tokenistic and that you're not facilitating stigmatizing attitudes um, and, and things like that, because, you know, it's, it's becoming more and more known that a lot of uh, TV content uh, and also media content um, portrays mental illness uh, in, in ways that maybe are not too compassionate. You know, we've all seen like the crazy kind of person on the street yelling and screaming or something like that in a show or one flew over the cuckoo's nest, which doesn't really go into great depths. Um, so what mind frame, I think it was about 2014, the guide was established and it was consulted with uh, the industry as well. So it's, it's, it's a really great resource, um, like a well-founded resource. Yeah, so they're slowly, I guess, uh, changing the way that we are representing folks with mental illness uh, on our screens and in our media. So that would be my first port of call if, if you're wanting to, to get some advice that way. Um, and yeah, what Chris said as far as sharing your lived experience or if you are writing a piece of fiction, um, maybe consulting with some people that have had that lived experience so that you're making sure that it's not just a token um, representation, it's actually quite a meaningful uh, and well-rounded representation. Thank you for that, Ben and Chris. And um, so I'll probably get to the next segment where I'll divide this one into sections. So we'll start with where do you think the industry is at with regards to intimacy coordination in protecting performers and creatives' well-being? Yeah, I'll take that one. Yes. <laughs> You know, the, the role of the intimacy coordinator or the intimacy director, depending on whether you're in screen or on stage or in live performance, as we sh as it's shaped now, is still a relatively new role. But the use of intimacy, as we understand it, we're talking about you know, simulations of sexual activity, simulations of sexual violence, um, you know, uh, staged and presented forms of nudity, 
And those things have been in film and television and film, you know, and, and on stage and in dance since time immemorial. So we've definitely found our way around this problem for a very long time. And the, the role of the intimacy coordinator or director is it's just a changed, more direct and new approach. That being said, because it is so new, it is still only being kind of taken up by a, a certain few um, organisations and outfits, um, generally either those who have a passion for the area or people who can afford it. And so we're still in that kind of that, 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 early, that early stage where people who are either just that little bit too reticent or a little bit that too concerned about the budget constraint of having a person who's got both eyes on this kind of content. And we've still got, we've still got a ways to go before the role of an intimacy coordinator is considered as um, vital to content in the same way that a fight coordinator is or a stunt coordinator is. And that's really where the industry, it's, it's where the role and the people who are kind of pioneering it are trying to take it is to see it recognised at that same level. So, yeah, it's to answer the question, it's still early days. However, it's, an, it's proven itself already to be an incredibly important function to the degree where huge um, production organisations like HBO and Melbourne Theatre Company have entrenched the role in their staff and in their projects permanently. That doesn't just happen. And that certainly doesn't happen because it's worked a couple of times. That happens because people are able to identify um, the invaluable nature of what an intimacy director or coordinator can bring. Um, so I think it's I think it's well on its way to being a really important part of the creative process. So Rennie, do you mind if I ask uh, Bailey a question? Of course, please go. Yes, is that okay? I'm just really curious to know um, about like is intimacy coordinators in your knowledge, like some of that training or some of that lessons, are they being uh, rolled out in some form or fashion in some of the uh, like institutions, like creative institutions, like United's and Whoppers and stuff like that, or even technical? Uh, it's sort of, it's not a degree that you can take um, at a drama school, if that's what you mean. Um, More like just like a subject, so the awareness of intimacy and how to like what the industry standard is moving towards and I guess preparing people that are going onto sets that don't have the role some basic knowledge of what's correct what's not acceptable and things like that for sure I think those discussions are being had with students a lot more I know that in my work as a consultant um on consent I'm being called into student groups more and more to talk to students about bodily autonomy and their safety and inclusion and consent and, and how it plays out in the industry. As far as I'm aware, and I don't work in institutions, so I couldn't speak directly to that. Um, I'm not aware that there are units that are developed because, and the reason for that is because the practice is still building its own sense of pedagogy and it's still developing uh, something that universities really like, which is a sort of tried and tested, you know what I mean? Um, sort of the people who we would call the pioneers of intimacy direction and coordination as we know it now, people like Ed O'Brien and Jen, um, up in the UK and Jennifer Ward Leland over in New Zealand and Alicia Rodas up in um, the States. And, um, you know, they've only been operating this space for less than 10 years. Um, and a university tends to like a little bit more traction and, and you know, uh, the first kind of disciples of those kind of three kingpins are only now kind of stepping out on their own. Um, as, as fully, fully fledged accredited intimacy coordinators with that group. 
Um, that that you know that being said, there are there are a number of intimacy coordinators out there and people who are doing intimacy based work, myself included, who aren't accredited, um, but have you kind of have two schools where there's enough of a skill base that that person does a good job, and then there are people who have um, their own motives um, and aren't sort of doing so good a job. So yeah, so it's not something that's happening in at the institutional level just yet in terms of what's being taught, um, mostly because students aren't going to institutions to learn how to be intimacy directors or coordinators and um, they're going to be actors it's i'm hoping though that they are hearing about the function on a set the way they would hear about other functions that are available to them to support them through their work as performers i i mean i would suggest i like i at a lot of drama schools and i, I find that um it's as you say bailey it's quite i i haven't really heard of it as a unit but at least there's just been that step in often there'll be a talk sometimes there'll be two weeks at a great school of two weeks with someone um but it might be oh we're having a you know a talk with with someone so at least it's aware but you're right like it, it it's sort of still just like oh this is something we need to be aware of i think is sort of where we're at rather than going knowing exactly what to do <laughs> yeah <laughs> And what steps are we taking to integrate awareness about consent and triggering con content from conception through to production? Maybe this is a this is a more interesting one because um, while the role of the intimacy director and coordinator has been considered a really big move in the right direction, it, it's a very particular solution to a particular problem and a particular site of risk in the creative workplace. So an intimacy coordinator can only really be there at the moment that we simulate something on stage or, and even then, you know, if it's, if it's a live performance, they're really only there in rehearsal. They can't be there at the moment every night of the week. Um, and in a filming scenario that, you know, that, that person is only there during the filming. When we know that, um, you know, risks to a person's boundaries um, and sexual violence can happen at any time, in the creative workplace um, and so building a sense of consent as a as a tool for well-being which is what it is i mean consent as a practical practical item is a tool for well-being in the workplace because it's what makes people feel equal and what makes people feel safe what makes people feel like they're able to communicate their boundaries and have them respected that is that is something we're still working on um, and i i mean to share a story I recently uh, was working in London um, before uh, COVID hit. And I really thought when I was getting there, because this is the place where the Uter O'Brien's originated, that I was walking into a space that was incredibly conscious of what consent would be. And there were going to be loads of people who were working in, in consent as dramaturgy, consent as um, workplace safety, consent as industry well-being language. And it just wasn't the case, which was kind of um, flummoxing. It, it kind of shocked me because, you know, this is, now that you know this is now two and a half years by the time i was working it was two and a half years post me too um which was supposed to be a real game changer and it certainly was for a lot of things to come about but consent is still a conversation that many people are reticent to have um, and many people feel I, I know that when i was going into rooms people were really quite concerned about why i was there um, and people were very defensive to my appearance in any kind of project mostly because consent is kind of used as a synonym with sexual violence when it's actually an antonym. Consent is the opposite of sexual violence. But because we only raise it 
when there's sexual violence at play or being discussed, people have kind of attached the two. So it's when it's really important to me that um, with the companies I work with over there still, they bring me on every project where there's any sexual violence or any sex or any anything at all because they understand that consent is the actual building block from which you create those things and which you bring those things in. It's kind of got to be the overall. And that is still a conversation very, very few of us are having, um, but hopefully there will be more of us to come. And uh, does the crew also have access to consent as they're also getting exposed to dissimilated sexual content and violence repeatedly on set? One of the first, and um, when I did the first iteration of the work that I do, which is consent consulting and in creative practice, um, which was done on an, a production, an immersive theatre production of The Wolf of Wall Street, can you imagine? And um, one of the first requests we had after the first few workshops with the actors, um, there was a meet, we had a big meeting with all the heads of department and a few, the lighting designer, sound designer, production designer all said, we want that. We want that for us, we want that for our team. And so we extended the workshops to crew straight away because yes, absolutely. The crew, the crew is as much a part of the production um, as any, you know, crew are present for um, intimate content. Um, they are, are sometimes intimately present, you know, you've got, um, you've got a grip and you've got an AD and you've got, you know, the camera people kind of all up in the business of actors who are being supported, but the crew kind of have to sit there and kind of be present to that and often studying it in a way that can be quite overwhelming. So it's definitely something that crew need to have available to them. Um, in fact, I had a session with Chloe Dallimore recently, who um, is just an absolute genius and um, Chloe has sort of been implementing some practices around making sure that crew are given heads ups on certain content being filmed because often crew are the last to know what's being filmed the next day. They're kind of given very little lead time um, and for those of you who are about to make work, you know, give your crew as much of that of that support as you would give your performers and um, to let them know what's coming up for them so they have the ability to seek whatever support they need or have that discussion early on about whether they're going to be able to be their best selves at work that day um, in the same way that we are going to try and give that to performers. Yeah, and I think just adding to that, if I can, like from the crew's perspective but also I guess the leaders and content creators uh, themselves it's great that now we are having uh, intimacy coordinators and and thinking about these kind of issues on set or uh, in our theatres but I think where it probably starts is way way earlier as well as you're either you know you're planning or even as you're writing as as your first question alluded to like what do we do for representing uh, mental health uh, in you know in, in our content but when we're going to be uh, filming or staging a play, we should be thinking right at the very beginning, well-being, uh, which, you know, intimacy coordination falls under. Like everybody's well-being right from the beginning. Is there any content in this show that may trigger somebody? Or as I'm writing it, just, you know, have some notes on the, on the cover page that, you know, these three scenes may be distressing for the person that's reading the script for the very first time. Just some very basic awarenesses around uh, the impact uh, of people's well-being can be through the creation of our artistic works. And it doesn't cost any money doing that, right? Like just being mindful, have a read of your content, you know, for the two hours that you're reading it, just like it literally doesn't take much time you know, uh, and that's the only expense, really. Maybe a little bit of extra ink on the, your cover page of your script, but it's you know quite 
quite a practical thing we can do. And like often we're also working with, I mean, coaches or directors on environments which are abusive. So, um, I mean, Pip, would you like to add something to that? I mean, in that, in this context? I mean, uh, there's changes happening, but if you look, I mean, even anyone that's, you know, 10 years ago, five years ago, and probably still now, and, you know, um, there's, I, I know so many, so many um, actors who, you know, maybe they've gotten to drum school when they're 19, vulnerability, that, that that's that's trauma that's trauma or directors you know first first show like real bullying i think there has been change but it's it's i mean we've got generations of actors walking around with trauma from early early directors and early early coaches and 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 hopefully that is that is changing in this conversation um <sighs> I, I, I do think it's it's really, really important for us coaches and us in that position to have an understanding of mental health and, uh, and wellness. Um, we should be trained. This is so important because an artist, you, you're giving your heart, body and soul. And, and for people to sort of take that and to kind of you know, do this, do that, you know, and, and having, it's so important. I mean, I don't know what necessarily that I'm, that I'm adding other than it's really important. Thank you. Thank you. We have a question from Ella. Uh, so hi, Ella. Yes. I'm on Gadigal land and I pay my respects to past, present, emerging, and I also pay my respects to you guys. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so I work in the film industry and I've started taking some steps to try to implement, implement change in our industry. We've got uh, in ways of support, training and awareness in mental health. We've got nothing, this question's probably a bit big, but I've been getting up, so far I've been getting up at Toolbox once a week and just talking to raise, raise awareness, which is hard because I'm not an actor and it's scary talking. My question is, um, does anyone have any advice on how to take action to start getting training happening in the film industry in mental health and seminars or anything. Any yeah, I mean, maybe I can take that one. Um, so um, all this year, uh, I've been working on this myself uh, because towards the end of last year, I realized like quite stupidly because I've been working in this space for a while, but I didn't actually click the awareness that there was nothing happening in my part of the industry in the screen sector. You know, in the music industry, they have Support Act. In live performance, they have the Arts Wellbeing Collective, but there was nothing happening in screen. So that really focused my attention this year as much as I could on the screen industry. So uh, this year I have been rolling out uh, mental health first aid workshops to the screen sector. Um, so training up folks how to have conversations uh, like with their colleagues. Um, about mental health and get them the support that they need, whether that it's noticing a condition as it's, you know, in an early stage or whether somebody's in a crisis situation. Um, the end of last year as well, I did um, some uh, online webinars for different parts of the, the screen industry that was called Screen Well. Um, and I'm 
pretty close to having funding secured on uh, a, a regular kind of uh, website that will have a bunch of resources specifically for the screen sector in the wellbeing space. So fingers crossed <laughs> uh, and we'll be looping, you know, all you guys in all these wonderful, you know, practitioners, Chris, Pip and Bailey and, and many more. Um, so yeah, fingers crossed. It's, it's, on, it's, it's, it's slowly getting there and getting on the way. So hopefully that makes you feel a little bit better that there is stuff kind of moving behind the scenes. And some of the guilds are actually doing some good stuff as well. They have regular little focuses on screen and, and things, but I'm hoping to get much more training, which I think was at the core of, of your question, like the, the different kinds of training specifically for our industry. So it's in our language, people can really connect to it using film as well as a training tool because we work in film, we're good filmmakers, we know how to do this. So using our language and our, our medium to kind of be doing this work as well. So yeah, we'll, we'll get there. And keep up the good work as well, Ella. Like, just you, you know, just you keep doing your bit and connect with me, and we'll, we'll try to do some stuff together because it's, you know, it's everyone that'll help. You know, everybody's you know efforts in this space. Like, even everybody's turning up today. Like, it's 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 everybody's job. It's everybody's responsibility. It's not just you know the top down. It's you know where the grassroots kind of filtering up. You know, it's we all need to kind of be participating and and our ideas to be heard this way and you know the solutions. So you know, everyone, uh, so keep doing the work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ben and Ella. So we'll go to the next one, which is what are some of the barriers preventing equitable mental health access and self-care, especially for minority and underrepresented communities? So Chris, did you want to take that? Sure, I can start. Um, I mean, first, as a psychologist, I always like to acknowledge what a white Western individualistic discipline psychology is forever um, till now. And that immediately makes it inaccessible, anywhere from inaccessible to harmful for, for people of, of different cultures and, um, and different minority groups. And what that has also often been is people you know, especially you know, people of color or people of different gender diversities um, have experienced harmful experiences with people like me, with people from the medical professional or the mental health professions. Um, and it's, it's, we really, I think from as a mental health professional, we all really have to start from a place of acknowledging that um, before we can move forward and before we can make our spaces more accessible. Um, and the second thing I think is to, to listen to people with lived experience and people um, from different minority groups um, about what what they need to work with uh, to understand the incredible uh, things that work for mental health and well-being in other cultures that are based on community care and team care, um, not just kind of the individualistic kind of diagnosed, you know, the condition is in you and you should fix it is a very kind of Western idea of mental health. I think it, yeah, it comes from first understanding what the problems are and how deeply seated they are into, into a lot of the medical models of mental health care and kind of trying to step outside of that and look at different models of mental health care and look at making that more accessible. Because in the end, mental health care in this country is, is expensive um, and is inaccessible for a lot of people. And we need to change that at a systems level, um, but 
we also, you know, just at an individual level, um, can start to question our biases and question um, how that may make us be unsafe uh, to other people and how we can change that to make us um, more safe and more accessible. And does, uh, do you think cultural background and family expectations also pose barriers to accessing help, make it harder for us? Yeah, I mean, your family of origin and your, your culture and their attitudes towards mental health and towards just talking about emotions, you know, which is really sometimes when we're talking about mental health, we're talking about how open you are and accepting you are of your own emotions and talking about emotions. And, um, you know, it's often said that the way that your parents treated your emotions is how you treat your own emotions. If they didn't let you express your emotions, you probably have that attitude towards your emotions yourself. You don't express them. And the, so the way your, your family and the way your culture treats and, and um, mental health and, and talks about emotions will really impact how safe you feel to talk about your emotions and will also impact how safe you feel to go outside of that family group and seek help when you need it. And yeah, there's a lot of complexities when, when we're talking, you know, about mental health in other cultures and, you know, as a white man, I, this is never really my place to, uh, to really talk about, but I, I would say that, yeah, really starting from that point of knowing that your family, your culture will influence how, how you view mental health and how you view your emotions. Um, and some parts of that may be helpful and some parts of that may be unhelpful. Yeah, I think self-care is harder for you when you're unsafe and not accepted. So it, it just gets even harder. Absolutely. Can and I... when you're already, if you're already a minority, it's exhausting, right? To just, to deal with just structures and to deal with your everyday and to deal with harassment and to, to, to deal with discrimination. Uh, and if you then go and see a psychologist and they kind of turn around and say, well, it's up to you to fix your problem and just do self-care. It, it's not accepting the structures that exist around you. And whenever I talk about individualistic or self-care strategies, it always has to be talked about in the context of the systems and the structures that are around someone that contributes or, or is harmful to their mental health and well-being. And that is especially the case for, for minority groups. Um, um, I completely agree with Chris and you know, acknowledge that I'm a white woman as well for all that I'm a trans woman. Um, in working with... Uh, people of diverse cultures, people of diverse um, experiences with, with disability. One of the biggest pieces of feedback I've got in my work is understanding as well that the arts industry is still an industry that is based on scarcity. So there's also a major barrier to seeking um, support when you're from any kind of minority because um, the industry still looks upon needing help or needing access to resources or needing access to accessibility supports um, as an interruption to work and there's always going to be that concern that if I need to ask for time off to manage um, my mental health or to seek gender affirming health care or to gain access to an accessibility support that I require or seek medical treatment for a chronic illness um, etc etc this is going to warrant time away from work which is not going to be seen positively in a gig economy that is still based on the philosophy of I can get someone to replace you in a heartbeat who's cheaper than you etc cetera, etc cetera. and we're still a lot you know a lot of people from minorities are fighting for any kind of representation in this industry fighting for any kind of visibility whatsoever um and yes there's still a stereotype and there's still a, a culture that needs to change in this industry around 
if I, you know, I, 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 there are so few opportunities for me that I cannot risk anything by looking after myself. Um, at, you know, at, at, you know, at the, I'm not willing to sacrifice the one job I might get this year because it's the one role for this particular ethnicity experiencing this particular neurodiversity. Um, it's my one chance. And if I need to take time off for medical appointments, that's not going to be understood by the production company. Um, and I think there's a lot of work to do on educating people at the production level on different needs of different groups. Um, cultural sensitivity training should be rolled out. Laura Jane Turner, I just want to shout out to you for putting it in the chat that, you know, um, there is industry-wide education that really needs to be done around different forms of cultural safety, cultural sensitivity. Um, you know, and, you know, I mean, I understand that I, what I teach consent is also a Western, is also a greatly Westernized concept. Thanks, Chris, for, um, for pulling that um, to the fore because understandings of sexuality and intimacy on screen and on stage are also largely westernized concepts and and without a cultural consultant as part of the project which is not something people think to bring on um you are going to be putting possibly putting people of color at risk that you have in your cast etc cetera, etc cetera. so and you have to understand what your job is and what your job isn't there, there's still a lot to be done and those are barriers as well at the at the top um and from a from a cultural barrier to what this industry asks of the people who contribute to it and jumping off that, I think as well, like from my point of view, that's where um, if we are in the majority, where maybe we can help uh, with this with this process, and if we're feel if if we're willing to do so, is be the people speaking out about our own personal struggles and mental health, because maybe where the heavy lifting needs to happen is not in you know the minorities or the people that aren't getting you know as many opportunities, but maybe with the majority so that we can normalize mental health and well-being uh, from, from that regard. So when the odd person that felt comfortable reaching out that they were struggling from a minority or they needed a bit of extra help or support or time off, then we would, some of the hard lifting would have been done in this well-being space. However, anyone that wanted to share their story uh, and kind of own up that they needed some help, I would definitely applaud that. But I do understand the complexity of doing so, particularly when your opportunities are less than others. Thank you so much, Billy. Thank you so much, Ben. Thank you all of you. So we have a question from Laura. Hi, Hi Laura. Hi, Laura. Um, Bailey just briefly shouted out to my question, I believe, but I was I was asking about in in normal workplaces, like I work at the zoo and I work in a pet store. And in both of those workplaces, I have mandatory modules that I have to complete every month or three months on respect in the workplace, consent, um, all this kind of stuff. But because the entertainment industry is, it's a gig industry, you're working project to project, there's no kind of overarching uh, entity that mandates these kind of training modules. And I wondered whether that a, are those modules, are they proven to be beneficial in the first instance? And two, is there a way we can integrate those and how would we do that? Would that be um, a project by project basis? So each time you sign on to a new gig, you've got some mandatory modules you do or you all come together as a cast and crew and get paid for the day and you do a, a huge workshop together so you're all learning the same thing at the same time? Or that's, I guess that's what I'm wondering, is, is there some way that we can implement something like this so that we're not kind of falling through the cracks with that training? Yeah, I mean, maybe I could speak to that because I've been like talking to a lot of people in this space to get understanding about it myself. 
Um, disclosure, not a, a workplace health and safety expert by any stretch, but sh share what I kind of understand. And I think it's like what uh, Bailey was saying earlier on about how some of the, the top tier productions now are making you know, intimacy coordinators part of their budget. So I think it's probably, again, a, a top and a bottom approach. So from the top end, the more and more uh, companies uh, that have the resources, the infrastructure, the human uh, resource departments and whatnot, uh, our big TV networks um, and our bigger kind of production companies, Freedom, Fremantle Media Shine, the more and more people that are implementing some of these things uh, from the top down, but at the same time, us at the bottom, like with mental health first aid training, there's a ground movement down the bottom kind of coming up and meeting the people at the top. So I think with uh, the getting some of these awesome programs into our workplaces, I think it's probably both aspects. As far as um, the effectiveness of things outside of mental health first aid, I wouldn't feel comfortable talking about because I don't know, but certainly from mental health first aid, it's an evidence-based kind of program that has proven to have remarkable benefits for people that do the training and it does have impact uh, on people's lives. So I can talk at it from that point of view, but uh, from some of these other specific trainings, I, I don't know enough about. Thank you. Like, like it's a very, really interesting point that you raise about, um, you know, having something standard across uh you know all all workplaces i know that there's a few again big like big theater companies that will have a day and they'll talk about who you can talk to if there's a you know a, it's, it's so specific to each each production that you do and you know i mean it would be a really interesting thing to move forward to actually think what can we mandate across everything yeah, sorry, one other thing, sorry to cut you off if I did, Pip, um, was that we have precedent for, for similar things to this in the physical workspace. We have to get like tickets to wire electricity, whether it's in stage or screen or get in cherry pickers and up. There's, there's courses for that physical aspect. So I think on some of these psychological and wellbeing issues, we're just kind of catching up. So I think we have a precedent in our workplaces to implement these things, but we're just yeah playing a bit of catch up. Sorry, Pip, if I cut you off. Um, Thank you. If, if, if I may, um, Laura, I think the que answer to your question is yes, 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 and yes. There <laughs> should be mandated standardized induction training that everyone runs. There should also be consultant to particular projects that are particular to that team of people and that particular piece of that particular series of content. There should be, um, interim uh, networking groups of people who are passionate. There should be, you know, people who are put into training because they're causing issues in their industry too regularly and need to go to something that gives them that as a means to work within the industry more safely. Um, I think there, you know, there could there can be no shortage um, when it comes to some of this stuff because Ben's made a really excellent point and it's the one point of diversion that we have, which is that. Um, we have an understanding, um, and the understanding is still only quite new, about how to establish physical safety in our industry. Um, you know, don't plug, don't put forks in electrical sockets and don't climb ladders over three feet alone. Um, however, in establishing psychological and community safety in a creative production is a much more nuanced beast and is so particular to that team of people, which is why the approach that I take um, whenever I work with, when people sort of go, what do you do? Um, I'll always go, well, the first day is really about the team. And we just, 
understand how that team actually works and how that team wants to communicate with each other because it is its own symbiotic, unique kind of unit that will evolve as the project evolves. And we can't kind of put a hard graft on that. We can give people a certificate that says you have a base understanding and you have a common language to work with, but those things also take a lot of time to put together. Um, and while we're working on that, it's important that there's always some champion somewhere who is putting this in um, and, and building that seedling movement, as Ben said. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Laura. And uh, so we have a question from a participant who wants me to read it out on their behalf. So I'm an actor of both screen and stage. And so my question is for the performers on the panel, what techniques do you use to distance yourself from roles that might trigger mental health issues? I can talk. I do think Chris might also <laughs> like to share as well. Um, there's something that is quite, um, it's, it's emerged as quite a big thing, a discussion topic, which is de-rolling. It's, it's sort of emerged recently and it's this um, notion of separating yourself and the character. So it's the old Stanislavski, don't bring the character home. So there's practices, there's very um, practical things that that you can do. There's resources, Kathy, you might even want to um, post, post um, the, the de-rolling um, uh, sheet. But uh, there, there's things like, you know, when, the, when, the, when we finish the show, as the costume comes off, so does the character's identity. There's meditations as well. There's a whole list that Kathy can, can put there. I think as well, there's something that's really integral, which Chris, I'm sure you, I'd love you to talk about. Um, but again, I'm gonna come back to the self-worth and who are you outside of the role. I think that is really, really important because sometimes it's like, oh, take the costume off, but it's sort of still, we're still sort of stuck in the mindset. So I think it's balancing that. It's also, um, uh, things like, you, you know, your, your gratitude practice, um, there's the idea of having a you box off stage or off set. So, so you're going, okay, so, or music or smells, you know, music, this is the music I used to get into character. What's the music I go back to, <laughs> go back to my mindset. Um, you know, at the beginning of your rehearsal process, when you're doing your list of, you know, how's the character different to me? How, how are they the same? Remembering that and then going back to what that is. So understanding your point of view when you're looking through the character's eyes and then when you're looking through your old, your your normal self, your gra your grateful self, um, your uh, calling a friend, hugs, two minute hugs. I think there's something very big in physical contact if you can with COVID, um, but if not calling, Chris, can you talk more? There's probably more as well. I mean, I think you've talked, yeah, about some really wonderful that the de-rolling or the, the things we can do to make sure we stay connected to ourselves. And as, especially when you're, what's really interesting because trauma was mentioned in the question about sometimes roles are, can be a place where you're processing trauma. And it's, it's always good to name that the idea of, of uh, not doing things that trigger you obviously is a helpful idea, but it's also helpful to name that to process trauma is also very helpful if you can do it in a safe, supported way. And for some people, they use art and they use their practice to process trauma in a safe, supportive way. And I've seen many people do that and make huge change to their life. Um, 
Obviously, it is very unsafe and unhelpful to do a role that's traumatic for you and you're not feeling supported and you're not feeling safe. Um, so what's really important is before choosing whether you're going to take on a role or choosing whether you're going to continue a role is really putting yourself first and being able to step outside of that and say, you know, am I supported here? And if the answer is yes, then you might be up, then you go to the next question, which I think is always, how is this meaningful or important to me? You know, be, and if you can answer why a role or why you're staying in your career as an actor or an arts worker, or if you can really name and know why that's important and meaningful to you, then resilience is about being able to be open and allow space for the normal, uncomfortable emotions will come up as we do things that are important and meaningful to us. If you want to avoid uncomfortable emotions, just keep doing things that you don't care about. That is one way to live. But when we start doing things that are meaningful and important, they will bring on uncomfortable emotions. And we in safe and supportive ways can learn how to process and understand those uncomfortable emotions. Um, but we should only ever be maintaining resilience and be processing those emotions when it's something that's important and meaningful. If we are trying to push ourselves to do something that is not important and meaningful, then you know that's dysfunctional persistence. And that's when you're gonna get burnout. That's when you are just working towards something just to meet an expectation. So within mental health in, in the arts, I think it's always so important to keep a connection to the meaning and the why you're doing it. And then, and then learn the strategies to process the, the normal, uncomfortable emotions that will come up when you, try and, when you try and live that life. And I think if I can jump in there as well, uh, so obviously talking about the performance point of view here, um, but also crew should be mindful of some of this stuff because we can learn a lot from the D-roll guide and, and how to look after yourself and self-care, but specifically for writers and content creators, because one of the things I learned making the show must go on talking to writers is just how closely linked they are to our process in the fantasy world that they go down and the rabbit hole of characters that they're looking at. So they're essentially the, the writers, uh, sorry, the, the, the performers before we take custodianship of their work. So writers particularly and content creators, if you really are going into that depths, I think it's really healthy for you to also have a de-rolling or a self-care kind of practice at the core of your, your work ethic as well. Something also um, I'm sure a lot of people in lockdown have experienced is having the different places for different things. I think space is quite big and, um, you know, like don't work on your, if you're working in isolation, which a lot of auditions are and you're getting yourself prepped, I think having your self-tape corner, if that's it, of your apartment, um, that's not, you know, necessarily on your bed or just really getting it quite wise with segregating your house for different um, activities um, because we don't want to start to carry the, the the mindset you've worked yourself into to to play this role in the places that should be your safe place. For sure. Yeah. Um, a, a great director I worked with um, said some really key things to their creatives on the first um, the first day of working together on a really intense project. Um, and I hope, I'm sure they'll be comfortable with me sharing these with you. Um, and they've led me to have, to sort of suggest that if you're ever working with content you find triggering or traumatizing, you should be having three conversations. The first should be with, with someone you know and trust who has nothing to do with the project. 
There's absolutely no stake. And that's a really hard thing for performers because we're all friends and we're all connected and we're all, you know, sort of trying to network. And so we don't actually know a lot of people outside of our industry. But if we can find one human who doesn't give a crap and only cares about us as a human being, that's a lifeline that we can create. And that's the first conversation you should have. The second I recommend is talking to a counsellor. Um, psychologists, you know, and you know, if you're lucky enough to work with someone amazing like Chris, um, but there are a ton of other professionals who kind of come in at different levels and counsellors kind of have um, that sort of lower level of support. And they're just a person to talk to rather than a person who um, can support with, with healing or um, or uh, you know, meditation or anything like that, like, you know, at the upper level. So someone, at least a counsellor, some sort of um, mental health professional. Um, and have a conversation with your director. And there are three conversations that are probably scary to have, but this, what this director said on the first day was, um, you're here to act. You are not here to suffer. And to that end, you are, you know, if, and if there's a way that we can make sure you're not suffering, that you are working, because if you're suffering, you're not working, and we need you to work. So if you're suffering, then you need to tell us how we can help you not, not suffer. So in that conversation with the, the trusted person and the counsellor, the psychologist or the psychiatrist, that person should be giving you tools that you should share with your director. So the other thing they said is, whatever you're doing, no one expects you to do it alone. And so many, so much of what we encourage in this industry is, well, your self-care, you should look after yourself. It's all on you to manage. And, you know, don't, you know, and that can kind of breed with the other, the, the other toxicities of the, of the arts industry and make us feel like, well, I just need to keep this secret and keep it to myself and kind of manage this all on my own and do my own little self-care that's, you know, um, as opposed to sharing your self-care with others. Share your share your practices with the people around you um, and create what Pip talked about in the first part of the call. Create a solid support network um, because that is what is that is going to be particularly helpful as you step into a role either once in a film or night after night after night after night after night on stage. Thank you so much. So we have uh, another question from a participant who wants me to read it out on their behalf. So how does one deal with being on a set as a person of color, as an actor or crew member and seeing nobody other than yourself being that specific ethnicity? It makes you feel like no care or thought has been gone, gone into diversifying the production beforehand. How do we start setting the standard for more people of color, crew to, to be implemented on Australian sets outside of simply filling diverse quotas for actors? What would need to happen in the Australian industry to get the standard looking like the USA who have multiple tools in check that guarantee more people of color on set as crew as well as actors. That was a long one, but yeah. Yeah, so I don't know. I'm just gonna own it. Like I, I really don't know. Other than, yeah, a bomb goes off and, and kills people at the top and some of the dinosaurs that have been, you know, holding on for a certain, uh, for, for such a long time. Like, yeah, I-, I Those dinosaurs I really exist in know. other industries, Ben, you, like- Yeah. And, I don't know that are shifting and those dinosaurs unfortunately raise plenty of dinosaurs underneath them and mentor a lot of people so it's certainly not going to be a generational it will be a larger generational shift but that won't be all 
and yeah. to sort of necessarily become a, these painters are hopeless scenario because we're kind of stuck under the the glass white this the pale yeah. stale male ceiling <laughs> yeah I mean all I can speak on beyond that is my experience as a filmmaker wanting to have diversity in my film is is asking you know so it's quite common um you know oh, I'm looking for a cinematographer I'm looking for something and you get the names and they're all men and they're all white men so it's on me as a leader to then go oh wait a minute is there any you know female options or other cultural diversity kind of options so I can only speak from that experience in what I'm trying to do and I'm being aware of it and I want to address it because my friends <laughs> like are from so many different diverse backgrounds and I want to see that on the screens and I want to work with different people that way. So, and beyond that, the other thing I learned through keeping on asking that, that, that question when the names coming back are not satisfactory to me that way and asking options, the options that you get, then when you do ask, are awesome. They're so colourful in the myriad of colours of our diversity, but also just the depths of experiences from people. So for me, at a low rung level of the industry, that's what I'm, I guess, trying to do. Um, and I was asking as well through that process, because even sometimes I was coming back and it, and it wasn't it wasn't a nuanced um, kind of selection of uh, people for me to interview or help on my team or whatever. I asked somebody about that who, who knew better than me and said, why sometimes even when I'm asking, there's no options. And she then uh, said to me, well, well, that's, that's great. That's a great first step that you're doing, Ben. But you need to go beyond that. If you really want to discover, you know, if, if, if you want the option to open up even further, you actually have to go looking in a said community or whatever. Like really, that's kind of the next step. I think the first step is we're asking more. Well, hold on, wait a minute. Surely there's got to be, you know, surely there's somebody else. So that's the first step. And then I think us getting much more invested as humans to, uh, get involved in different communities and lives. So our lives are more rich that way as well. So that's all I know. But thanks for the question. Thank you. And I feel, I mean, as a person of color, I, what I've experienced is also that, you know, a lot of times I'm auditioning and auditioning, uh, submitting so many self tapes, but I just feel that casting call came to me only because they were ticking some boxes in terms of diversity. Yes, lots of auditions, self-tapes, but when it comes to getting the job, nothing. So um, now we have another one um, and from a participant who wants me to read it out on their behalf. And I think I'm just gonna make that uh, as a wrap up question. So how does an actor look after their mental health and sense of worthiness? when in a lockdown and no work on the horizon what are some tools to use to keep on uh, keeping on with auditioning when you may have been out of work for a year or maybe longer i'll give it a go in the first instant this is i mean this is this uh, yeah they're really unfortunate how common this story is everyone everyone i'm supporting over the last couple of years every organization i'm working with it's i mean good to mention off the bat you know as an industry as a community we're grieving we're in loss 
where um, it's incredibly difficult to make this life work at the best of times, let alone the last couple of years. Um, the, what I would offer is, you know, the the last thing we the last thing that's taken away from us is our attitude towards what we're going through. We can always choose our attitude towards our suffering, our attitude towards what we're going through. And the only attitude that I can, I guess, invite you to try and connect to is to see a bigger picture here. That sometimes we're very focused on the next success, the next goal in our life. And right now, that's that's going to really not lead you to good mental health because there's no possibility for success. There's no possibility to re to meet your goals right now. But if you can take a step back, and I lean in the work of um, Dr. Sarah Lewis, who wrote an incredible book called The Rise, which is about the gift of failure and the creative process. Um, and she presents an idea that is the difference between success and mastery. And if success is to focus on the goal, the next thing, if you can take a step back right now and think about your mastery, which is what is that audacious thing that you're aiming to reach way off unreachable kind of future? What, what is meaningful important about this industry that you're working towards? And if you can keep focus on that, then all these little moments, which you might see as success or failure, just become moments of across that giant curved ever onward journey towards mastery. And to take a step even back further right now, try and see yourself as part of the arts, as part of acting throughout history, this meaningful, incredible thing that changes minds, that changes worlds. You're part of it, whether you're working or not, you're part of that. And if you can connect to that meaning, and you can connect to that onward ever onward journey towards mastery, then your suffering has meaning. It feels like this because it's so important and meaningful to you. And that doesn't take the pain away, but it might give it some meaning and give you that ability to make space for it as you keep, keep working. Thank you so much, everyone. And uh, thank you so much, uh, everyone, for asking so many questions, initiating this spirited conversation. Uh, thank you, Ben, Bailey, Pip, Chris, for your candid answers. And thank you to all of you for the generosity of your time, for the Equity Foundation to continue running events like this that will also serve to better inform us about what you as industry creatives want to hear more about. Thank you again. I'm sure everyone had a lot of um, you know, sharing of insights and food for thought from this session. And uh, we've gone uh, well stretched a bit of time there. Um, and all of you, thank you so much. And have a very good night, everyone. Thank you. Media Super is the principal sponsor of the Equity Foundation. For more information about the work of the foundation, visit equityfoundation.org.au or follow Australian Actors' Equity on Facebook and Twitter.